And then we did a final end of year show in front of all our classmates. So we performed in front of 126 people doing a 45 minute show. And two of the people from my class at Second City showed up and watched it and said it was as good as some of the Second City sets. But I remember being on stage after that show that, that was so successful. And I had taken photographs of the cast. I had created the set. I kind of created some of the lighting. And doing a killer 45-minute show in front of 126 people, I remember standing on the stage saying, this is it. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> my hair got blown around uh and now it looks like i'm wearing a toupee even though it's just actually really oh that's my... not a toupee okay yeah. all right it looks me... from this particular camera angle it looks like a toupee i'm, I'm a little uh embarrassed i don't know how to fix it <laughs> i i can i can attest one for for one that you are not a bald gentleman oh thank you uh uh yeah. Toughest thing about ever doing these things live is seeing myself uh, through the way a camera sees you on the phone because you don't look like you, what you look like in the mirror. And uh, it's trying to uh, matter trying to get the right angle. And uh, uh, and every time I see one of these, I think, oh, I should get some face work done. Like also right now, I feel like this part right here almost looks like my tribute to Conan O'Brien. Either Conan or I was going to ask how your restaurant chain of of Jonathan's big boys are doing well. Uh, uh, the Jonathan big boys are doing quite well. Uh, uh, we've been selling a lot of hamburgers lately. Uh, yeah. Well, I need to get a haircut because my top part of my hair is all poofy. Hi, Paul. How are you? It's so nice to see you, Jonathan. I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do Paul Vato presents. I'm so excited to chat with you for, for, for a little bit and, well, thanks. and, and I also find out, say, you know, maybe catch up a little bit. Sure. I also want to say, Paul, uh, congratulations on surviving the COVID era so far. Because it has been a crap two and a half years for a lot of people, and a lot of people disappeared. So whenever I see anybody that I haven't seen in a while, I like to say congratulations on surviving the COVID era. Well, thank you. I, I take that. I take that to heart, and thank you. It's good to see that we're all, you know, surviving. Some of us, you know, and thriving maybe. But because it, it, it's not been an easy run, uh, whether it's a business or relationships or things like that. But it's great to uh, reconnect and, and chat with you. And I'm glad. And likewise, it's good to see you as well, Jonathan. Well, thank you, Paul. Um, so how are you? What's going on in your world in L.A.? Because you are doing this uh, fireside chat. You do it with different people. I saw you did it with Kate Lambert recently. I've, I've really used it almost to reconnect with a lot of the people because I've gotten back into acting. I'm actually in Las Vegas where I've been for the past ooh, 10, 11 years. Uh, I'm oh, really? Okay. Owner. And he wanted somebody to sell him cigars. So I moved to Vegas and I opened up Vato Cigars. I, I was still acting in Vegas. I, I did. I had a small part in a Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood film called The Trust, where I get to yell at Nicolas Cage in Spanish. And <laughs> I... And you got paid for that, <laughs> too. A lot of doc. people would have done that for free just to be able to yell at uh, him in it's Spanish. Been, it's been great. Uh, I'm thinking about, again, relocating. Uh, I've been watching van life videos. So I've got this, you know, I lived on my boat for a while, so I'm not adverse to living in small spaces, but this whole van life and RV thing has really got me thinking because I've, I've been wanting to do a travel show where I meet the people in real life that either I haven't talked to in a while, but meet people that I only met on social audio during COVID. So on apps like Clubhouse or, or you know, Owl, and now Fireside makes it easier because there's video. But I would love to um, travel the U.S. and then eventually the world, meeting those people whom I've just spoken with, but not, you know, have them show me around. So it's a travel show that I'm, you know, pitching and, and whatnot. But I think uh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So I, maybe I'll, I'll be maybe I'll, you'll see me in Chicago. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, uh, I, you I thought about living on a boat because I remember when Fred Kaz, the former Second City uh, main stage piano player, famously lived on a boat both in Chicago Michigan and later in Los Angeles for the rest of his life. And when I've been in England, I've seen people uh, uh, living in boats. And, and when I was in Amsterdam, I saw that people were living in boats. For some reason, 
that seems more excitable to me than living in a van. I just feel like you have more room in a boat than you do in a van. But what do I know? What do you, you lived in, in a boat. How was it? It was a big boat. It was a 43-foot boat. So I've, I've lived, I feel, in smaller apartments. So this 43, you know, a forward aft, uh, the, the aft cabin, the, 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 the forward cabin, aft cabin, it, it's uh, uh, two heads, a galley. I mean, it could have probably slept eight, maybe even more with, you know, people up, up on the deck. Um, but it was really um, very roomy. So, no, I, I hear you. A, a boat is great. But you can't you can't go very you know many places where the vans have like built-in showers you know they're small and I might have to lose a few pounds but you know they're they're very nicely appointed but there is that stigma of uh, I live in a van or imagine offering people rides hey you want to jump in my van like I don't think so Vato <laughs> I've been attracted to the idea of living in a tiny house but having seen them I feel like I'd want to live in two also, tiny houses put together. One not one tiny house seems too tiny, but two tiny houses seem sort of like the equivalent of a studio apartment. One could be your your podcasting studio or your work area. Uh, so I've also right. very attracted because you know I have a condo right now in Vegas, and it's two bedrooms. One's just used for storage. Like if I just got rid of all that, I don't really need all that space and all this junk and everything. So that little Isn't house, I might start also doing we a podcast. Accumulate? It's crazy. It's insane how much stuff, and I've given a lot of stuff away. I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff, and I still have way too much stuff. Yeah, I just realized I never introduced you, so my friend, let me uh, thank you. For that world's uh, that was the world's longest intro, uh, cold open, and let me introduce my guest. My guest today is Jonathan Pitts, who's an old dear friend of mine from the Chicago days, Second City, and was just instrumental in in the I think the proliferation of improv in Chicago, but also like these improv festivals and other festivals that I'd like to love to touch on. But uh, so Jonathan, welcome. If you'd like to introduce yourself, because I'm sure I missed a few things, please uh, introduce yourself and let, let the world know uh, here on Fireside who you are. Well, hi, everybody on Fireside. If anybody's watching, I'm Jonathan Pitts, and uh, uh, I have uh, taught and performed improv in 26 countries and 98 cities, but I've also been the co-founder of the Chicago Improv Festival, and I produced it for 20 years. I created a college improv tournament and produced that for 14 years, a teen comedy fest, a podcast festival. But that's, you know, when I was mainly just staying in one spot. But now that I've been traveling around the world, I've really been going to a lot of different places. Um, I'm also somebody who was an improviser before I became a teacher or, or a producer. So I love doing all these different styles of improvisation. And then... Uh, I guess the only other thing to say is I also do storytelling. Um, so there's that. And I'm really glad to be here. And it's great to see you again, Paul. And um, it's really interesting to see what people know of me from when they know of me. Because there are some people right. who know me as the producer of the Chicago Improv Festival. So they know me in a very different way versus the people in Europe who only know me as an improv artist. And so it's just, or, or the storyteller folks that only know me for storytelling. So it's sort of like, uh, yeah, so that's it. That's very interesting. And it, it speaks to the phases and stages that most of us go through in life. And uh, that's why I can totally relate to what you're talking about, because, you know, by the time you get to be our age, we've accumulated a lot of stuff, just actual stuff, stuff. And I've been working to get rid of through donating uh, a whole bunch of stuff uh, and in a lot of times taking photographs of it if I want to have a memory of it, but I don't want to keep it. And I've been trying to get rid of stuff and, I'm, and I've already gotten rid of like, because uh, I had two, when I was traveling around the world, I didn't have a place to live because I was traveling around the world so much. It didn't make sense to pay for an apartment, you know, that I wasn't going to be at nine months out of the year. So I put everything in storage and I had two storage units. Now I have no storage units and I'm down to living everything in one bedroom. Uh, but I still have stuff left over from my mom who died almost 10 years ago that I have to get rid of. Uh, and then I've gotten rid of like over 20 boxes worth of stuff in the room that I'm using for storage. But there's still more to go to. In my 20s, I used to live uh, light enough that I could travel anywhere with three, three car loads, like a hatchback car load. I could fill it up three times and be completely moved. And I have found traveling around the world that when you're on the road, 
you want less stuff. Whereas when you're home, you want more stuff. You're like, when you're at home, you're like, oh my goodness, a walnut cutter. That'd be a good thing to have. Oh, and maybe something to store the walnut cutter on. Oh, and then maybe something for all these different nuts. Oh, oh yeah, and herbs, lots of herbs, and then something to store all the herbs in. Whereas when you're on the road, you can get other shirts, you can get other pants. If it's not the right clothes for the environment you're in, you can get others. Funny, they have chairs in other parts of the world that you don't have to like just always live with all your own stuff. So traveling around the world, a lot of my possessions started feeling more like tools. How many countries have you been to? Oh, I have uh, now taught or performed in 26 different countries. Wow. Wow. You're a quarter of the way there, a little bit more than a quarter of the way there to visit every country in the world. And uh, 98 cities so far. Wow. That, that's amazing. What has been your, fa- uh, I don't know if this is a fair question, but what has been your favorite country so far to visit? Uh, I guess other than the U.S. Uh, and maybe your favorite city. Well, I have to kind of break it down by uh, continental regions. Uh, my favorite place in Asia is Singapore. And then my favorite place in Europe is a toss-up between Lisbon, Portugal and Galway, Ireland. And then in Oceania, which is Australia and New Zealand, uh, I really like Wellington, New Zealand. And then I also really like Melbourne, Australia. So that's a toss-up there as well. Wonderful, wonderful. If you were to move anywhere, though, where, where do you think you, you might you would relocate to if you were to move outside of the U.S.? Or I was yeah, outside of the planning US. on moving. I was planning on moving in 2020 and then COVID hit and destroyed all my plans. Uh, in where 2020, were you going to go? I was going to spend three months living in Europe, three months living in Asia, three months living in Oceania, because each one of those three months is a tourist visa. And then use that particular city, the cities that I mentioned, as headquarters so that I could go around the other areas to do more. And then like three months in the U.S. And then my plan was after that in 2021, moving to the place that I like the most. And I didn't want to just move there from like spending a week there be, or, or four days there because, you know, it's like having a great first date. You know, I figured if I was there for each place for three months, I'd get a much better sense of, what do I do? I really like this place when the place just becomes a place. What a great way to uh, to do that, navigate that. That's uh, that's wonderful. Um, I, I keep hearing great things about Portugal, especially if you're a business owner or you're starting a business there. Uh, but it's uh, they they're looking for people to relocate to Portugal, so that might be an option. They also have artist visas in Germany. Really? So, yeah, okay. and certainly it seems like if America continues on in this path towards authoritarianism and fascism that it's a matter of getting out before it's too late. Yeah. Now you can't leave. Right, right, right. right. It would be, yeah. it, it, it'll be, well, it's great to have those, those options, but uh, Hey, worst case scenario, we get, we get a, we get an RV or a van and, and you live on that off the grid and solar and, sure. and whatnot. So all these things. Are yeah, if it hit that bad, yeah. I would probably move to New Mexico because I lived in New Mexico for three years. You living in Vegas, you know a lot of what you know what a similar geographical territory it is to New Mexico. New Mexico, it's pretty easy to be off the grid out there. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Greetings, my vatos locos, and welcome to another episode of Paul Vato Presents. I want to sincerely thank you for tuning in. People have been asking what they can do to help support our program. And well, the easiest way is to just head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a like, give us a follow, maybe leave us a review. Also, maybe head on over to Spotify and do the same thing. We're on all the podcasting platforms. So give us a like, give us a follow, share it with your friends. You can also head on over to paulvato.com. And from there, you can follow us across all social media. There's also a link to our Patreon. So for $3, less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help support our program and it would be really appreciated. So thank you for your time. And now back to Paul Votto Presents with our very special guest. Thank you. You were the founder of the Chicago Improv Festival, Me correct? Me and Francis Callier. Or we one of the founders? Yeah, Francis Callier and I 
co-founded it together. I always say that because she was with it for the first three years and then moved to L.A. And I ran it for all 20 years. So, you know, she was a part of it for for three years and then I kept going. And then all these other festivals that were they all in Chicago, like the the, the youth? You had a youth improv festival? What other festivals? Yeah, they, they were they're all in Chicago. Uh, there was like one festival that I did in Three Oaks, Michigan, uh, that I, you know, helped put together some shows for, but otherwise it's pretty much only been there. And uh, I helped create a improv and storytelling festival that takes place in Galway, Ireland. But that's been something I've done in the last two years. Wonderful, wonderful. How did COVID affect you? Were you still able to either, uh, do you teach, do you coach? Were you, how were you able to then survive during COVID? Uh, were you doing things online or via Zoom and things like that? Eventually, I started doing things online. But at first, uh, at first, it just shut me down completely. I didn't make any money for eight months. So I was living off of savings because, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't it didn't make sense for me yet because I, I didn't like the way a lot of improv looked on Zoom. So I didn't know how to teach it on there, you know, with time from looking at other people doing it, I figured out how to do it. Uh, but even then, most of the people I've been teaching are more like voiceover actors rather than uh, people that want to do improv. And um, but the biggest thing was that shortly after the everything shut down, I was also given a diabetes diagnosis by my doctor. And so I spent the next four months changing my diet, changing what I was doing. Uh, because back then, if you had diabetes, and I was considered obese at the time, and I had high blood pressure and enlarged prostate, that I was like the target child for death by COVID. Right, right. So, uh, especially, you know, back in the early days, pre-vaccine, when they just knew who it was killing. Because at the time, it was killing more white men than it was other uh, demographics. And so... Uh, I spent, you know, I thought it doesn't make sense for me to go out and get some kind of job when there's no vaccine and I'm this susceptible to COVID if I have savings that I can live on until there's a vaccine ready, whenever that might be. But in the meantime, I'm going to work to lose the weight. I'm going to, um, see if I can change the diabetes diagnosis. I'm going to see, you know, what else I can do. I uh, had prostate surgery and they removed 70% of my prostate, not because of cancer, just because it was enlarged, which is a genetic thing. Um, and then I lost over 30 pounds. So I look more like the weight that I was when I knew you. I'm basically the exact same weight as to when I was when I knew you. And so uh, I lost the weight. And within four months, I went from diabetic to pre-diabetic. And then four months after that, I became just a regular diagnosis. So I really felt like in a lot of those eight months, I was working to save my life so that if COVID got me, it wouldn't kill me. Got it. And in January of this year, I got COVID and I was sick for about two weeks, uh, um, but it didn't kill me. But it did there. And it doesn't appear to have had much long term uh, uh, things, but it has put me from normal range on the diabetic level back to pre-diabetic. And, you know, it's one of the weird things that uh, COVID, there's a real strong relationship between COVID and diabetes. As far as like people not having diabetes prior to getting COVID and then getting diabetes, it seems to be one of the things that happens or that people are pre-diabetic and didn't know it. And then COVID really pushes that rate to a much higher place closer to be diabetic or actually being diabetic. So uh, I'm now back to trying to battle back down from the pre-diabetic back to normal. Uh, but if I had not done all those things and I had gotten COVID, it would have killed me. So I was wow. right to be as concerned as I was. And, uh, and I spent a lot of that time uh, living in different places because I didn't have a place to live. So I was staying in Airbnbs, occasionally people's uh, houses if they had like a spare bedroom, but they weren't going to be there. Uh, I stayed in an extended stay America for a while because they had a kitchen. And, you know, a lot of it was I was betting on the AstraZeneca vaccine coming through sooner than it did because my friends in the UK were saying this is going to be ready in the spring of 2020. Oh, now it's going to be ready in the spring, summer of 2020. And each one of those things, it would have been ready faster than 
the American ones. And so I would have just gone over to England and get it. But instead, by the time it came out, uh, ours were already coming through. So I went ahead and got it. The last four months of my life prior to getting the vaccine, I was living in Three Oaks, Michigan, which is a small town of 1,300 people. And I was staying in a two-bedroom apartment by myself. And that apartment was above a theater that I had performed in in the prior. So I was familiar with the building, familiar with that uh, uh, that whole place. But it was interesting because that entire block, there's only one other person who lived there. So it's just me in this very large building, which, uh, uh, wow. yeah, I thought, boy, if anyone ever kills me, they could torture me for days before anyone ever hear me because there's no one around. But the reason why I went, to, went there is because I thought, you know, I'm, if I stay in Chicago, I'm in a metropolitan area of 8 million people, you know, 3 million in the city, 5 million around. Whereas if I go to this town of 1300, most of them aren't going to wear masks, but I don't know them and I'm not going to be around them. So that, so if I'm wearing a mask, my chance of getting COVID from them is much smaller mathematically one in 1300 versus, you know, 8 million to one. And indeed that was the case. And then I got my first vaccine and that's when I moved back to Chicago. Uh, the only reason why I got COVID is because I let down my guard. I went to a Christmas party uh, and there was a two-year-old child there who had COVID and I wasn't wearing a mask and, wow. you know. Do you have family in Michigan? I have family in Chicago and in Los Angeles. Did you grow up in Chicago? Uh, I was born in Evanston and I grew up in Oak Park. And except for living in Albuquerque, New Mexico for three years, the rest of the time I've always lived in Chicago. Wonderful. Such a great city, such a great community, especially the improv community. How did you find uh, improv? How did you get into, were you doing some, some other acting before or did you, or comedy? Uh, I or, got into how did you end college. Up, uh... It was, I was in college and, you know, I'm old enough that the original cast of Saturday Night Live was hitting as I was in my teenage years. And I loved them. They were for me like what Elvis was for a prior generation, what Beatles were for a prior generation. I love that original cast so much and what they did. And then, of course, when I found out that, you know, Belushi, Aykroyd, Murray, Radner all came from Second City and Second City was in Chicago and I'm living in Oak Park, I was like, I want to go there. And so I kept calling and at, leaving messages saying, can I, do you guys have classes? Can I take a class? And back then they had so few classes. Um, and, you know, back then they only had one class total. <laughs> now they've got so many classes. They've got classes on improv and everything. If you want a class for improv and postage stamp collecting, they'll do it. But back then there was only one class. Was a class part of the Second City non-existent yes. curriculum or was it like the players workshop? No, it wasn't the players workshop because that separated at that point. Got it. Interesting. Okay. This is okay. 1981, 1981. Okay. So uh, the players workshop had gone off in their own direction. Uh, and then Dell was teaching and, you know, back then with Dell's classes, they would run for a long time. They would meet twice a week. And roughly you had to audition to get in. And then if you were in, you were in for about a year until they got tired of the class. But I got started got because it. I was in college and uh, I met somebody who was teaching at Second City. This one man who had taken over Dell's class because Dell was in rehab. And so the stage manager at Second City had took it, taken over the class and was uh, going to teach at my college. I was going to Triton College as a liberal arts major. And so I talked to him on the phone because I was working for the person that was booking him. And he said, I'm teaching a class right now. Why don't you come by? So I went back on Saturday. And back then, the class that he was teaching, um, it was 13 weeks long, meeting twice a week for two hours on Thursday, four hours on Saturday. And I entered in the class like halfway through, and I was learning improv games and learning the old school Herald, not the Herald that was in the book Truth and Comedy, but the old school Herald. And, uh, uh, and then when the class came to an end, Dell came back from rehab and you had to audition to get in and I didn't get in, but he did laugh at like, uh, we played story, story, die. And he did laugh at my death because I died by heroin injection, having no idea that <laughs> Dell was a heroin addict, but he liked it. Uh, so then I convinced my college, 
I convinced them to let me put together a college group for extra credit. And that became my semester's extra credit internship. I put together a group with eight other people. It was five women, four men. Uh, 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 one of the guys was a person of color. One of the guys was had a disability. One of the guys had a mental illness. We were like so far ahead of the curve, you know, and uh, one of the women were a lesbian. We were so far ahead of the curve back in 1981, but it was just who was in the program. So that's the people that I, you know, that wanted to do it, that was interesting. And I taught them and I brought in a couple other people to teach them. And then we did shows at high schools. And then we did a final end of year show in front of all our classmates. So we performed in front of 126 people doing a 45 minute show and two of the people from my class at Second City showed up and watched it and said it was as good as some of the Second City sets. But I remember being on stage after that show that, that was so successful. And I had taken photographs of the cast. I had created the set. I kind of created some of the lighting. And doing a killer 45-minute show in front of 126 people, I remember standing on the stage saying, this is it. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Wow. Because wow. really, in that point, I performed, I taught, I directed, I uh, promoted it, I produced it. So all those different things that I've done was all happening at once in that one show. And it really was that much of a crystallizing moment. I was like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Not that I had any idea how to do it. I just felt, bam, this is, the pl this is it. This is what I want to do. Amazing. I'm, I'm amazing. I'm glad that you found that early in life, you know, and uh, were, did any of those people, do you remember, did they, did they continue into the, in the world of improv? Would I know any of those people no, in, your, in your improv? I'm the only one that did. Uh, uh, one guy later on moved to LA and was doing commercial work and he was, did an improv group for a year or two, but he just stopped that and did commercial work. And then uh, his wife was, a voice caster for Disney's attractions. And then, you know, they retire. Now they live in Costa Rica. So, but no, none of them did. You know, I, I'm still in touch with one or two of them. Uh, one is a really good friend of mine. She is a child minder living in Scotland, in a small town in Scotland. And another one of the guys is a fire battalion chief of a suburban fire company. And then the rest of the people, who knows? <laughs> I don't know where they went. So, yeah, I was the only one. It was just like I was doing it because I so wanted to do it and I so loved what I learned. I didn't want to stop and I wasn't going to let my not getting into that audition, into that class, stop me. A year later, when I auditioned for Dell's class again, I got in. So, you know, and I ended up being able to study with Dell three different times each time for about a year. Amazing. So it was a period wow. of like study wow. for a year, year off, year study, year off, year study. It was long before there were training centers and the whole sort of pyramid of learning stages and levels. So, you know, I studied with everybody I could back then, you know, including Michael Gellman, Martin DeMott, Bern Piven, every, you know, Sheldon Patinkin, everybody I could. You know, I stopped, I dropped out of being a liberal arts major because I realized I could learn more from these people who actually created this work than to get a degree in liberal arts, you know, and it was cheaper to take all these improv classes than it was to get a liberal arts degree. And, you know, if the only thing I think now is like, it would have been nice to have gotten a degree, but I would not have been doing that good of work in the liberal arts because I was so drawn to studying with everybody I could. I kind of look at that four or five years as like getting an undergrad in improvisation. I ran sure. lights for a year I mean, at the uh, Improv Institute, studied with John Mitchell. I mean, like there was nobody that I wouldn't study with or learn things from. And that five-year period was such a good base and foundation of so many things. Who did you study with at the Improv Institute? Is it Joe? John, John Michelski. He was the founder of the Improv Institute. Got it. John Michelski. And wow. I ran lights for it's, it for its first year. You learn a lot running lights or running a board and for – Especially for improv, you, it's, it's because it, when do you take the lights out? When do you, you know, how, you're part of the team, part of the edit. With the Improv Institute, they had lots of different lights. So it wasn't just all white lights. So I could light up different areas of the stage at different times and in different colors based on the mood and energy of what they were doing. Do they, does anyone else do that? That seems like a, 
I'm sure other, my experience is other people do that in other parts of the world, but most of improv in America, specifically in New York, LA, Chicago, is all white lights, lights up, lights down, which is still its own skill, but I really loved being able to use different colors, different lights. That's why uh, with the Chicago Improv Festival main stage, I would always make sure we had as many different lighting options as possible so that we could even have a spotlight left, a spotlight right, spotlight center, you know, be able to do different kind of lighting looks so that you could have different moods and feelings and really make it look very theatrical. How, when did you end up at the Second City then, uh, besides studying, but then more in, in uh, I guess, business capacity? Uh, how did you end up there? Oh, before I forget, there's a photo of me with Dan Aykroyd. You mentioned Saturday Night Live earlier. It's actually Dan Aykroyd's birthday today. So happy birthday, July Happy 1st. birthday, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Thank you for Aykroyd. being an inspiration. He, yes, he, he definitely is. That must have been so amazing, though, to, to have been there really at the birth of Saturday Night Live and in your formative years, like you said, like the Elvis uh, maybe the Justin Bieber of, of today, but, you know, these heroes that they're our heroes, but you were there. I mean, I was, I, I was, you know, I'm a little bit younger, not much, but a little bit. So for me, it, it, it took me a while to discover them. But when I did, it was like, oh my God, it was, it was life-changing. But I, I remember when. And I also uh, loved SCTV because here in Chicago, SCTV came on right after Serenit Live. I had the pleasure and honor of interviewing Chris Kloos, who was one of the writers on, on SCTV uh, when they won that Emmy back in maybe 82. Uh, so if, if he was one of my first interviews uh, a, a little bit, you know, a couple months ago when I first started uh, this podcast. So uh, for those of you that are listening, check that out. Uh, yeah, and we discussed you know, the early time with SCTV and all that and, and the connections and how actually Dan Aykroyd was instrumental in, in the development of Chris Kloos's career. He's got a great story about how he randomly met Dan Aykroyd uh, literally on the street after they'd been to Saturday Night Live to hand in their writer's package. They're like, no, we're going to throw it out. We don't look at anyone's packages. And uh, there's a whole <laughs> story, so it's interesting. It's, it's, it's such a great story. And it's funny how one person can change the trajectory of your life. And then it's somebody like Dan Aykroyd, who's such a nice guy, and it's his birthday today. So I'm glad that that came up. Did you meet Dan so through how did cigars? You end up at uh, we connected later in life through cigars because, you know, he's in the vodka business. I met him at Saturday Night Live when Horatio got hired in oh, right. 97, 98. So Horatio was nice enough to invite me and I think Keith Privet and maybe Nunez went. Uh, and I, I think maybe that was it. Uh, we were invited out to his first show at SNL. Uh, and so we went, we were like, yeah, we're not going to pass this up. Uh, Cameron Diaz was the host, Smashing Pumpkins were, were the band. And um, they did a sketch. Uh, do you remember the, the Night at the Roxbury guys? Uh, uh, Will Ferrell yes. and Chris Kattan. I remember that. Did. Yeah. Uh, so they were doing a sketch and it was not going well. And you can feel it. The audience feels that everyone feels that well, they're almost feeling bad for them because the sketch isn't going anywhere. Uh, and then they really tricked everyone. Then the, the, they're in a bar and they're hitting on girls and the sketch isn't going well. People in, in this nightclub part and who happens to be there, Dan Aykroyd and Steve Martin reprising their role of two wild and crazy guys. They were like, the, and the audience and just went insane. Uh, so they really set the audience up and, and gave this mediocre sketch. And then all of a sudden the reveal was it was actually, you know, the original you know, night at the Roxbury guys. Right. Were so it was Dan like a purposely mediocre Mark. sketch to set up. I, what was yes. yes. They set everyone up and then it just brought down the house. Cause there's, there's Dan Aykroyd and Steve Martin and they've got the two wild and crazy guys. And I met them that night. I dressed up for party. Halloween with my friend, Jerry. We dressed up as the two wild and crazy guys in high school in Halloween. Uh, another oh, time in been, Halloween, oh. I dressed up as, uh, uh, as Belushi's samurai guy, which now would be not a good thing to do, but back then I it don't was think okay. No. But no, now it'd be like a double form of cultural appropriation. 
But at the time, it was just me playing Belushi playing that character. But uh, it would be easier now to still, yeah. But uh, me and my friend Jerry played those characters, uh, the two wild and crazy guys. We took photos. It was, you know, so, so yes, that's the show you see. That's amazing. I'm yeah. going to look it up on YouTube. So it, it, it would have been, unless that was the second time I went to SNL. No, I'm pretty sure. Oh, you know what? It might it, it might have been the second time I went. But either way, it was at SNL. But afterwards, so we go to the after party and we're kind of sitting out in, in a booth. And of course, you know, Dan Aykroyd and his and Donna Dixon, his wife, have center, you know, the, one of the main tables. And, you know, we're very respectful. We weren't saying anything. He gets up to leave and he kind of waves or waves me over. So I can come over. He goes, uh, we barely opened this bottle. We didn't even have a glass out of it. Would you guys want this bottle of wine? And would you like our table? And I'm like, yes, yes, we would, sir. Yes, sir. So he gave, and he, he gave us our, uh, his table. He gave us a bottle of wine. And, you know, I think the drinks were, it's, it's an open bar. So we were already drinking. Um, and then uh, years later, uh, met, ran into Dan Aykroyd again. Uh, my friend, Big Daddy Carlos, who owns a restaurant in Hollywood called the Velvet Margarita Cantina, where they have a drink called the Velvet Vato, um, kind of reintroduced us because Dan was doing his his uh, Crystal Head Vodka, and I kind of told him the story. Uh, and his wife, Donna Dixon, was there again, and she looked at my wife, and she was kind of like, wow, you've done good for yourself. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. And they kind of went <laughs> on. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So did Dan. Dan also did well for himself. Uh, yes. So, uh, so we kind of just connected. And I, I mean, I have his email. That that's really about it. Every now and then, uh, I'll I'll send him an email. I was looking for a, a signed bottle of his vodka, vodka for my brother, who had a special customer here in Vegas. But um, just the nicest guy, sweetest guy, and um, I mean, just an inspiration and a hero of the improv and yes. comedy community. Absolutely. And he's somebody that I've never met. Like I, I've met Bill Murray. Uh, I gave Harold Ramis a Lifetime Achievement Award. So there's certain ones that I've met. You know, of course, I saw Gilda perform live, but I didn't, you know, and I saw the Blues Brothers live perform. Uh, but, you know, and I saw Belushi do a set one night at Second City, but I've never met Dan. And I feel like if I ever do, what I want to do is trade ghost stories with him. Because I've had some ghost stories happen, sure. and because I know he's really interested and a believer in ghost stories, uh, I think. these are from the Second City, or, or just no. Though Second City famously did have a ghost. That's what I in thought. That space thought that... between between that that weird little room between uh, Second City main stage and ETC. Yes, that, you know, up near the top of the. That's where a lot of people saw stuff or felt stuff. God, yes. Yeah. I, I remember people talking about it. I don't think I ever experienced it, but I wasn't in the building that much. You know, I was there for classes. I was there when we did Touched by an Anglo set one sensation. And I'm sure that and we owe you a, a big debt of gratitude for for letting us do, you know, the Chicago Improv Festival and, and all that. You you and, and uh, Francis Collier, you know, you guys were true inspirations to us. Well, I, I loved you guys doing it. I, I thought it was really important to have. And I've always thought this, you know, now it seems like I'm trying to pat myself on the back in a post-woke environment. But I always thought, and by the way, for people to know, Frances Callier is an African-American woman and incredibly talented. I've always thought that it was as, as important as possible to have as many different voices available and presented in the art form. Because you got to have room for everybody at the table. Otherwise, you don't really have a table. I can, I can attest to that, that you guys have always been in the forefront you specifically, you know, trying to be inclusive. And it's, and I never experienced any type of exclusion. It was just that it just wasn't in our wheelhouse. I think it's like Latinos, like, oh, you know what I want my son to do? I want him to go to Chicago and do theater, you know? So it's not like, uh, <laughs> right. you know, it, it wasn't like we were being excluded. We just didn't have it available to us. But when once we went out of our way to, to be a part of it, we were always made to feel very welcome. And, you know, uh, and, and to be a part of, you know, the Chicago Improv Festival was huge, especially to a new group like Salsation. So thank you. Well, you're very, very welcome. And you guys did a lot of great work over the years. So you should be very proud of that. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's what took us out to L.A. And then we changed the name to Barrio Speedwagon. But nonetheless, I remember Barrio Speedwagon. That was a great group, too. So and another great name. 
Thank, thank you. I, you know, I love the puns. I, I love the, the punny, the punny names. So, hey, how do you feel? If I may ask you a question, how do sure. you feel about Latino, Latina, Latin, Latin X, Latin I? Those are like the four different definitions that I've seen. Uh, I've read that like people over the age of thirty don't like Latinx or Latin I. They prefer Latino or Latina. Latina. Uh, having lived in, you know, uh, having lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I remember going over there saying, "Oh, so you people are Latino," and they got very mad at me. They're like, "We are not Latino. We're Hispanic." Or, right, right. There's we're not Latino. Hispanic thing and- we're not Hispanic. <laughs> we're Chicano. Right. You know, and, and that's right. what introduced me to the idea of like, you know, this is not a monolith. You have Latinos, you have Hispanic, you have Chicanos, and they're all from different sections of different backgrounds. But going back to my question, how do you feel about the Latinx designation? Well, I created my own term and it's uh, chi- Chicago, a Chicano from Chicago. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so, and you could probably run on that as an alderman in here in Chicago. A, you can list yourself that and run as an alderman. That's it. That's it. I'm yes. a Chicano, a Chicano from Chicago. I didn't even know what a Chicano was until I moved to, yep. you know, or Pocho or anything like that. Even though I appropriated the name Vato, which means dude in Spanish. But um, uh, I think as long as you don't say, because I've also heard it called uh, uh, Latinx, Latinx. I go, that's too close to Kleenex. So, yeah, no thanks. Uh, but, no, I'm, I'm old school. <laughs> I like I like um, Latino and Latina because, because the language itself is male and female. So it's like you're literally telling somebody else to change their language and go, you know, your language doesn't work because it's, it's actually Latinx or Latinx um, or Latin I. It took me the longest time to even figure out how to pronounce it. I didn't want to appear foolish, so I just would never even say it. So I think I'm more old school Latino, Latina. I feel like we're like we're like. It's a great question. I, well, thanks. I feel like we're people just sitting there going, "You younger generations, get off our lawn with get your redefining terms." And and sometimes it's not even the Latinos that are going Latinx. It's it's white people going like, you know what? Uh, you guys are Latinx. Like you know, you you, you can't. So <laughs> I think most Latinos are like, no, and some of them are like offended. There are people on, on this platform, I don't know if they're in the audience right now, uh, but that are <laughs> offended by the word Latinx. So yeah, I, I guess, I guess I'm just old school and I have respect for language and I try to use it correctly. So I don't want to impose that on, on, on uh, the Spanish language and go, well, now you got to change from male and female to this Latinx thing, just to not insult people. So I, I don't know if that's the right answer, but it's my answer. Well, yeah, that's I'm just curious because, you know, since you are Latino, the, uh, that I thought I'd find out how you felt, you know, not to presume anything, you know. And, and generally having worked with lots of different people of different demographics and different ages, I find it's easy just to find out how they want to be called and then use what they use in their environment and not necessarily presume that what they want to be called in their environment is what other people want to be called in other environments. I just like to go, what are you? Sure. <laughs> yes. There's that, right? There's that. What are you? What exactly? What, how do how do I refer to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's but I can I for one, I can attest to your sincerity and not the fact that you're just jumping on this bandwagon. My goodness, in eighty one you basically they had a group you could have called one of each because you had <laughs> one of each. Like, I just remember that when we first started Salsation, we were trying to come up with a name. And uh, I, I suggested mostly brown because I know that not, not all Latinos are, are brown. But uh, so I, it, it didn't work. You know, we went with Salsation, which was a, a song off the, the Bee Gees album. But um, yeah, I thought mostly brown would, would work. And I thought landscape. Papers was a little, a little too too on the nose, so <laughs> right. Well, like you said, you got the good puns. Thank you, thank you. At point in my life, I was doing a lot of uh, improv work with children of uh, either physical or cognitive disabilities, and uh, uh, I was doing that through Cheryl Sloan, who was running Magic City. And so I also had a thing for a while called Kids Rights, 
where we would perform the writings of school children, but all around specific uh, certain cultural identities. So an entire school in Pilsen would write stories or an entire a couple of entire schools on the south side or a school or, made for children who were deaf and hard of hearing or a blind and visually disabled school or a home for children who were physically uh, and sexually abused. And so from that, I would always try to make sure as much as possible the cast reflected what was, you know, the, the writings of the kids, uh, also so that we could understand better what they were saying. But also every single time it was a learning opportunity working with all these different demographics because of how they wanted to be treated and or what they wanted to be called or not called, you know, and uh, and it was always. You know, I, I believe that one of the things that I learned from Del Close was as an adult, you never have to stop learning. And or I feel like there are certain adults who do stop learning and, sure. you know, you can keep learning and and yes, and learning through. And yes, absolutely playing. That's what I loved about improv. It was a validation that I could be an adult and still play. I remember saying that, uh, uh, that we forget as adults, we forget how to play and that and the importance of maybe even taking a breath. And it's OK to have like a second of silence, not jump on top of each other, but look at the different like options and then choose the most interesting option because as, as adults we forget how to play so right those are the things that stood out for me and by those. playing with different people in different situations you learn you know like when we were having when i was teaching workshops to kids with children with physical disabilities somebody's in a wheelchair somebody's on crutches somebody is missing parts of their arms or parts of the leg how do they play together and this is all like free video games so that you can just play together on video games so you know how do you play together in real life child in a wheelchair their wheelchair can become the chair from the star trek command center it can be you know there's using imagination uh, uh and, and the other thing i found out was back then a lot of children who had those sort of disabilities did not play very often because no one would go play with them because back then almost all playing was occurring outside as opposed to now almost all playing occurs inside and on video games which i think has created a different kind of stuntedness and in the imagination because then everybody's playing video games not that i'm down on video games but most video games have a limited amount of paths that you can travel so there's a limited amount of possibilities so the route is so defined for you you don't have to create your own whereas when a child is playing with a big cardboard box it can become anything they want it to be and i feel like that's leads more towards creative learning through play than necessarily playing video games does Definitely. Yeah, a hundred percent. hundred percent. I love that. That's amazing. Greetings and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Paul Vato Presents. I am your host, Paul Vato, and today's episode is brought to you by OWL, the OWL app. What is the OWL app? Well, it's an excellent way for you to monetize your time and your knowledge. Get paid for your expertise. You can join me on there. Download the app. You can use the referral code VATO, V-A-T-O in all caps. And you will get $10 to use on the app so you can try it out. But we are not just looking for advice seekers. We are also looking for experts, for advice givers so that you can monetize your time and your knowledge. Just download the app and check it out, play around on it. And again, I'm giving you $10 to use on the app. You can call me so you can basically call me for free. You set your own rate, whether it's $5 for 10 minutes or $10 for 10 minutes or $100 for 10 minutes. It's whatever your time is worth. Some people only charge a dollar for 10 minutes, but they use it as a lead gen funnel for their business. Pre-qualify people before they invest in working with you and find out if you want to work with them. Seek advice in all different fields, medical, uh, health, finance, automotive. The possibilities are limitless. Podcasting, acting, we have famous celebrities on there. We have professional wrestlers. So please join us on OWL. That's with two W's and two L's. If you go to paulvato.com, you can find the link there. Again, use Vato as your referral code so that you can get $10 to use on the app. And now back to Paul Vato Presents with this very special guest. Thank you. How did, how did you then end up at the, at the second city? 
Well, uh, like I said, I studied there, for, you know, I studied there for four or five years and then I moved to New Mexico to set up the group there. Uh, my girlfriend lived out there and she said, there's no improv group out here in Albuquerque. And within six months we did our first show and then we did 250 shows in the next two years. We performed all kinds of places, uh, all through New Mexico, uh, even performed on an uh, indigenous reservation where we were the only white people around for hundreds of miles. And, wow. and, you know, that's part of when I learned that comedy is cultural. To play is not cultural, but how you play is cultural. Comedy is very cultural and uh, it depends on the environment that you're in. And, you know, I kind of considered the three years that I was doing improv in Albuquerque as like getting a master's degree because I learned how to produce. I learned how to do publicity. Uh, I took my first directing class, took my first acting class. And in that time period, I'd learned an awful lot. That would be the equivalent of getting a master's. And then uh, the group broke up. Martin DeMott, who I'd met uh, before then, said, hey, come back to Chicago. Come work with me. I'm like, great. So I moved back to Chicago and uh, studied with him, sat in on his classes, audited his classes, hung out with him, learned from Martin the way that everyone learns from Martin, in which for a period of time, he takes you underneath his wing and you're sort of, he becomes your mentor, not, uh, uh, not just artistically, but socially and personally and spiritually. And then, you know, by that point, uh, I moved on and started to do other things. Uh, and I started doing scripted theater work and performance pieces and devised pieces. And eventually, when I was working on different festivals, because I got my start in festivals by Pete Salins' uh, wife, Jane Alexander Salins, Jane Salins. And uh, I got in there as a production intern and in 1990, and I worked with all these different people from all over the world. And that's when I fell in love with international work and international theater and saw how many different ways there are to do things and that the limited of creativity is not limited except for what you see as your own limitations. You don't even have to be limited by language if you don't want to. Uh, so it's the act of creating together that creates something. And then I finally got my first chance to start running a festival when I was the theater and performance creator for the Around the Coyote, which I did for seven years. If I remember correctly, I think I had Celsation perform at the Around the Coyote. That may have been our first one when I, I remember seeing that in your bio going like, oh my, I think that that's the one that motivated us to put together a submission tape. I think we, maybe we needed to put together, but I think that that was our first festival. So Thanks again. Thank you again. <laughs> well, you're welcome for that. And just because you tell people you're inclusive and everybody's invited, it doesn't work. You have to go let people know that you have to put out notice and not just on your block. You have to go to where people are because the yeah. show that you were a part of, you know, it, 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 was it in a church or was it in a uh, loft space? I can't remember which year you were in. I don't remember. If it was a space that was converted. Uh, I converted it, and it was also on that group as an African-American uh, theater company that performed, an indigenous American theater company that performed, a deaf theater company that performed, you guys, uh, and then like an all-lesbian group. You know, and that's because I was like, okay, I'm going to put them all in the same spot, not to ghettoize them, but to create a larger centrifugal force of audiences moving in and out. And, you know, that's how it expanded beyond just uh, European-Americans doing artistic performance pieces. If it was in the um, loft space, there was a performance art movement band that was on one side. There was an improv group in the, somewhere else, and there was a puppet group somewhere else, and then there was a performance group that destroyed the material. I think you guys were at the church. Yeah, I, I think we're at the church, and I would have to ask either Amr Arboleda or Ramon Charias, Ramon's kind of our historian. He's writing a book for the 25th year anniversary of Salsation, and they're still together. Salsation is still together, which to me is amazing that, you know, improv groups last three months, six months, a year, two years. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so we did something special there, and, and you were definitely a part of it. And, and you know, it's inspiring us and motivating us because we didn't know what we were doing, but then to be allowed to be a part of something like this was great so thank you like i said that's when i learned if you want to be inclusive you can't just say our doors open to everybody you have to go find the people in their neighborhoods 
and let them know. So, you know, I got a lot of, and that's how I ended up getting training to get people from around the world to come to the Chicago Improv Festival because I was used to going, what would I like to have here that I don't have? I'm going to reach out to them rather than waiting for them to come to me. Well, I seem to remember um, for, for the Chicago Improv Festival, watching people from Japan. Uh, there was a group called Yellow yep. Man Group. Uh, Love that group, right? I mean, it was all physical because we don't speak Japanese. They don't speak English, really. They probably did, but they did. They improvised physically, and it was amazing. I remember the, the, the people from um, from uh, Auckland, New Zealand. I remember the improv bandits, of course, of course. Uh, so that was uh, amazing to see that, and then kind of realizing how, how much smaller the world was getting, and especially through improv, just to go like, oh my God, they know the base. They know yes and. And I could go anywhere. I remember traveling maybe in, in the late 90s also to Spain and seeing that there was uh, somebody doing improv there. And I didn't get a chance to go see it, but I was like, oh, my God, they're, they're doing improv here in Barcelona or in Madrid at the time. Like, wow. You know, so it was very eye-opening. And you're right. You were just very inclusive. To go back to uh, Around the Coyote, how, what, was, did sure. the, what did the name mean? I always wondered what the name meant or how, how you came up with it or what it meant. On North and Damon, there is a building that is like 15 stories high, and that is actually called the Coyote Building. And for a period of time, it was the tallest structure outside of the Chicago Loop. It was the tallest building in Chicago outside of the Chicago Loop. And for a period of time when it was made, because it was right across the street from the Flatiron Building, so it was around for a long time, and it had gotten a certain historical significance, and that building was called the Coyote Building. And when they first started doing that festival, which was different artists showcasing their art by opening up their studios, the general territory of the festival took place around the Coyote. So it incorporated Wicker Park and, and uh, uh, Bucktown. And, you know, again, primarily it was either spaces that were converted to become performance spaces or showcase spaces for paintings and sculpt or it was people opening up their studios and audiences, civilians would walk from place to place. Got it. That makes perfect sense. All right. And now I know, I yeah. always wondered, I, and maybe I knew it back then. I, I don't remember. I'd well, cause you're like, there's no co but, uh, coyote. What are they talking about? I don't see a coyote. You're like, I, I had a coyote when I was in New Mexico. That was my pet. So right. it was named yes, after. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, one thing I want to share with you is that yeah. I believe that to play is a divine right of being human. I love that. Thanks. It's you, one Jonathan. of the first things that people who, who push fear take away, try to take away from you. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. So it is our divine right to play. Yep. Love it. it Jonathan in us as a human species. Amazing, amazing. Jonathan, thank you so much for, for spending some time. I would love to continue this conversation. Let's do it another time. Maybe when that. you're in your van. If I do the van, I want to make it a podcast studio. I want to make it a uh, audition studio so it'll have good lighting. I can just turn the lights on and submit an audition. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm I, I can be there tomorrow. You know, I can drive to LA tomorrow. Or if I'm on the East Coast, I can just I'll, I'll fly there if I get the gig. And the time is right because almost every every audition that I do, every audition that I've done via you know Zoom, via the internet, uh, tape it, send it in, and callbacks are on Zoom. So I need a tour bus, Jonathan. That's what I need. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to continue this uh, at another date. And Absolutely. Even if it's uh, another date. Absolutely. And, and one yes, more thing, a suggestion for you. You could call your show the Vato Fantastic Tour, since you like puns. I love puns. The Vato Fantastic Tour. It's fantastic. I got now. Okay, I got to get a van. I'll just get a big van. One of those. Uh, I've seen some, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to make a pun off of RV. I was actually going to do a cigar V and travel the country selling cigars that on would a cigar V. Cigar V. There you go. So maybe it'll be a cigar V for this van. Fantastic life. I don't. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, Paul, it was so great to see you again. So great to talk to you. Thanks for asking me, and thanks for this opportunity. And I look forward to uh, the next time we talk. A hundred percent. Do you have, uh, I think you've already given us your final thoughts about playing. You're also on Instagram, of course, and, and all that good stuff. Yes. So. And I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook. 
Uh, I'm not on TikTok. Well, I am, but I, I don't post. I just watch. Ah, uh, you have to start posting. It's another great platform. Thank you very much. Oh, one yeah. final thing for anybody who's listening, because you said if I had anything else I wanted to wrap up to. In improv, we get trained how to say yes and. Don't forget to learn how to say yes and to yourself. Say yes and to yourself. Hi, right, man. Well, right. That's it. We got to take care of ourselves sometimes first before I can take care of my scene partner. I got to come into the scene knowing things and knowing things about my character. So that makes perfect sense. Say yes and to yourself and take care of yourself. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank so you, Paul. Thank you have a much. good day. You have a great day as well. Thank Bye. you. Look a little closer, cigar in Moscato, an actor in improv, coming from Chicago, Alto, Big Wave of Paul Vato, Pablo, Diablo.